The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. You noticed I upgraded in the in the that that little wimpy um, music stand was not enough to withstand what I'm about to do here. And I needed a little bit something to get a you know grip on and and be a little more physical. Um, so tonight we're taking a look at Revelation uh, chapter five. And uh, let me make sure my my clicker's working here. It is. Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. And again, we said we're looking at the idol of sports this evening. And if you're not a sports person, substitute sports for recreation of some form. Okay, the fact of the matter is, we talked about this last week, we all have kind of this void of love that exists inside of us. All of us look to some ways to medicate that void and fill that void. And a lot of times, we try to avoid the pain in life through forms of escapism. For a lot of people, sports is escapism. For a lot of people, music is escapism or, or uh, something online or video games or whatever else. But whatever it is for you, just take what we're talking about with sports and apply it to that particular thing, okay? The fact that we worship running to our forms of escapism when we really don't have to escape a reality that exists with Christ and Christ's promises in it, okay? So we read from Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 14, and here it says... The Apostle John says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. Tonight, our three talking points will be as follows. We're going to look at the necessity of worship, and by that I mean the fact that everything that God created worships God. Not some do and some don't. Not religious people do and irreligious people don't. Nothing like that. Everything worships God because everything was created by God to worship God, so we can't help but worship. The only difference is who or what we choose to worship. We're all praising all the time. So we'll look at the necessity of worship. We'll look at how sports or recreation can become a form of worship. And finally, 
why is Jesus alone deserving of our, our praise? The necessity of worship, how sports can become worship, and Jesus alone is deserving of our worship, okay? First of all, the necessity of worship. Let me just say that I always hesitate a little bit to preach or, or teach sometimes, but to, especially to preach on uh, the, a text from Revelation. People always like hearing studies and, and sermons on Revelation, but I always hesitate to do it. And the reason for that is because there is less that can be conclusively drawn when you do a study or, or a sermon on Revelation. The reason for that is because, at least in linear time, some of what is talking about in Revelation hasn't yet happened. That's unique with, uh, versus much of the rest of the Bible, which is historical documentation, right? Revelation, much of it that's talked about, hasn't yet in human history, linear time, yet, been, yet occurred. And so that doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean it's not inspired. That doesn't mean it's not clear from God. What it does mean, however, is people tend to walk away from sermons on Revelation with almost as many questions or more questions than they actually have answers. Generally speaking, that's not how I want people to walk away from sermons. But despite that, we're going to take a look at this text because, again, I think this text tonight does a better job, perhaps than any other in Scripture, at painting a picture of what in some ways uh, the beast of modern sports looks like. Um, There really wasn't a whole lot in ancient times that perfectly rivaled what we have here today in America. There was, by the end of the first century AD, you had the Roman Colosseum. That certainly was a a pointing to the um, passion for modern sports. You had the Circus Maximus. You had uh, the Roman Amphitheater, which was like, you know, modern concert venues. You had the... um, physicality and uh, brutality of, of the Spartan youth, but you didn't have anything that was quite like modern sports. Uh, not quite on that scale. And yet this picture tonight shows it pretty well, and we're going to walk our way through it. And now I want to be careful, because we'll look at some of the details here in Revelation, but whenever you're looking at Revelation, you've got to be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. Okay, so we're going to look at the details, see what they basically mean, and see how that might apply to us and our perception of of modern sports and recreation. First of all, we have John saying that around this throne that he's picturing, around the throne there are 24 elders. Okay, what is that? Most commentators will suggest something along the lines of you have 24 elders, which equates to the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament, added together, gives you 24 elders. In other words, you have all the believers in the Old Testament and all the believers in the New Testament, all believers everywhere, every place throughout history, gathered around the throne. Next, he says, you have the four living creatures, And a little bit earlier in Revelation, these creatures are described a little bit in more detail. One is um, an ox, one is a lion, one is a flying creature, and one has the face of a human being. Again, most commentators will tell you, okay, an ox, that's domesticated animals. Lion is wild animals. Flying creature would be, you know, any kind of flying animal. And then, of course, you have humans. So all living creatures are gathered around this throne too. And finally, what he says here is you have this myriad of angels. He says, not just a thousand by a thousand, but 10,000 by 10,000. Now let me show you a picture here real quick. Anybody know, can you tell just by looking at that what stadium that is? Anybody got a guess? 
Yes, you can, it, the, the stars down on the bottom are maybe the giveaway, or just the size of it, or the scoreboard, uh, the, or the big you know, jumbotron thing. This happens to be not for a Dallas football game. I think, it's a Tim, I think it, they said it's a Tim McGraw concert. So if this, was, if this sermon was being done in Texas, it would be a very different idol this week. We'd be doing the, the idol of country, western, whatever. But we're doing it here, so we're doing it the idol of sports. And yeah, it, it seats about 100,000 people. Now, 10,000 times 10,000 is not 100,000. 10,000 by 10,000 is 100, I think. (laughs) This would be really embarrassing if I got this wrong. 100 million. So, in other words, about 1,000 times that. So that's the amount of angels. It's incomprehensibly enormous. The amount of angels that are also surrounding all the living creatures and all the believers past, present, and future. And they're all gathered around this throne on which we find a lamb. And the lamb has seven horns, and seven horns seem to be representative of power, and seven eyes, and you think of the seven eyes being almost like insight, wisdom, the ability to see everything and know everything at the exact same time. The most interesting thing about this lamb is it appears to have been recently slaughtered. And furthermore, they're praising the lamb precisely because it has been slaughtered for them. In other words, this is one giant, overwhelming, enormous picture of worship. Now, one of the things that we learn here of what's going on in Revelation, there's a number of things we could learn, but one of the things that we do learn is the fact that every single thing in life worships. Everything that God created is worshiping something because God created everything to worship for the purpose of worship. Now, what's interesting, C.S. Lewis is the first person I ever heard talk like this, but I think he's right. The way a, you've probably never talked about it like this before, the way a horse worships or a rose worships or the ocean worships or an angel worships is different from the way you or I worship. But what I'm trying to do is challenge your definition of worship. See, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, what is he saying? In a sense, these stars are worshiping. They're declaring the glory of God, doing what God created you and designed you and built you to do. That is a form of worship. So when it comes to worship, it's not that some people worship and others don't. Every single thing created by God worships. The only difference is who or what you happen to worship. We're all praising something because this is what we were all built to do. Reflect the glory of God and then cite God as the source of that glory. Okay? So that's the first point. Every single thing in the world is worshiping. The difference between us, as we get to point two then, is not that, well, religious people are worshiping regularly because they go to churches and synagogues and whatever else for an hour here or there. No, 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 no. It's not that religious people worship and non-irreligious people don't worship. We're all worshiping. The difference is who or what we worship. Now, what's interesting then is you take a society like America And a couple weeks ago, the first week in this series, we said that when push comes to shove, about 75% of the people in our country will tell you that they are Christian. Wait a second. 
if you were to take a, a quantitative empirical measurement of our country and you'd say, okay, who or what are they all worshiping? Do you think just on the basis of the quantitative data you would come away with, well, 75% of the people are worshiping Jesus Christ? My guess is probably not. Let me give you just one illustration of this. Let's say, for instance, that we had aliens come in a spaceship from a faraway galaxy. And no, I don't believe in aliens, and so it's a weird and bad example already. But uh, we're hypothetical, but let's just entertain, you know, humor me for a second. Uh, aliens come in a spaceship from a faraway galaxy. They come to, to Earth. They come to the United States. Let's say they even come to, you know, the Midwest. And their alien spaceship, let's say it's a, it's a Sunday, beautiful Sunday afternoon in autumn. And their spaceship hovers over a major metropolitan area. And they see this giant billion-dollar structure that dominates the landscape of the downtown city. Let's call it a temple. And there, at that temple, they find tons and tons of people, thousands of people, giving large sums of money just for the opportunity to be there and sit in the seats in that temple. Let's say they give an offering. And all these people are coordinated in what they're wearing, all the same kind of colors, and they're, they're eating, you know, tons of food in the process, let's say, so they have special dress and they have festival food. And they're led by nonstop music going the entire time. And sometimes it's, you know, harmonious songs of praise and sometimes it's cries of lament. And, you know, maybe they're down by the center of the action. There's, there's even like scantily clad women cheering everyone on. And it's not exactly temple prostitution and, and virgin sacrifice, but you get the point. At that point, if you were that group of aliens in that spaceship observing what you were looking at, you probably would say, I'm looking at the most raucous, boisterous, passionate, generous worship that I have ever seen here on planet Earth. And guess what? For a lot of those people, you'd be exactly right. So some of you might actually say now, okay, Pastor, I, th I think I figured out what you're doing from week to week in the Idol series. You're taking all the things in life that we enjoy and you're systematically trying to tell us to stop doing them one by one, you know, and pulling them out, to pulling the joy out of our lives. No, not at all what I'm doing. I'm a big sports fan. I always have been. I've always been a big, particularly basketball and football, always been a big sports fan. All I'm saying, remember, when we talk about idols, we're saying good things that we turn into ultimate things, God things. I'm saying there's a line that exists in every one of our hearts between enthusiastic fan and devoted worshiper. And all of us are potentially inclined to cross that line at some point. So let me just give you, we're doing tests each week too. Let me ask you, have you ever come into work or school on Monday morning and been cranky towards people because your team lost on Sunday? Um... Have you ever forked over insane amounts of money or whatever else or time to support the local deities? Are you more inclined to enthusiastically rise out of your seat when your favorite team gets in the end zone or at the thought of your Savior having risen from his grave? Love for sports and athletic teams and favorite athletes and recreation in general, nothing about that is inherently wrong. In fact, it's inherently, I would say, in many ways, a blessing from God. 
But disproportionate love for sports or recreation or anything else is in fact always idolatry. Furthermore, what we've, what's unique within our particular time and space is the all-consuming nature of it. Let me just show, highlight a couple of ways in which it's become all-consuming, particularly in our, in our distinct society. Um, it's become all-consuming potentially, you can grab your identity out of it as a participant. Maybe not for adults as much. This is absolutely the case for youth. And let me just show you for somebody who, who does actually draw their identity out of it how crippling it can be. Okay? Um, you know who this is? Ronda Rousey? Um, I, I'm not going to debate whether or not women's ultimate fighting we should be championing this as a sport, or men's ultimate fighting for that matter. We should be championing that as a sport in our culture. All I'm saying at this point is our culture absolutely does call it a recognized sport, right? And, and this woman's about as good as it gets on, on planet Earth. In fact, she's arguably the most recognizable female athlete on the planet. She was dominant in the UFC for many years, and uh, just this past November, she lost for the first time. And recently, she did an interview on the Ellen DeGeneres show, and she said something that I thought was so incredibly transparent and insightful. Maybe, maybe because, I, I don't know, she just seems very intuitive about it. But here's what she said about her loss. She said, I was literally, after my loss, sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one, I cleaned it up for this evening's service, no one cares about me anymore without this. Now that I've lost, I might as well take my life because I'm worth nothing at this point. She's so closely identified with what she did and her success in this particular arena that when she wasn't successful for the first time, she said, I might as well be dead. That's idolatry. Now, if you don't think that that can happen, especially for your kids as they're growing up, and kids who are identifying in sports that um, I do this and I'm good at that, Absolutely, that's the way it works. Now, what's furthermore interesting is she goes on to say in the interview, she says, after I was going through this, I'd hit rock bottom, I wanted to kill myself. She said, to be honest, I looked up and I saw my man Travis was standing up there and I looked at him and I was like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. You know what she's describing? She's describing her conversion experience. She converted from finding all of her identity and worth in being successful at sports to finding all of her identity and worth and value in her romantic relationship. We already covered that idol last week. That's conversion. And once again, I will tell you that anything that you make your God other than Jesus Christ will crush you. Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he will satisfy you. He's the only God that if you fail him, he will save you. But if you choose any other God, it will absolutely curse you. It's just a matter of time. And that God very clearly can curse her too. Point being, as a participant, as a player, you can get all your identity out of this, particularly, uh, and I'll talk about this more in a second, with kids it can be an issue. Um, it can, sports can become all-consuming as a spectator. Um, one of the interesting things in recent years has been the advent of stuff like uh, fantasy sports. You know, two of the most highly trafficked websites by men today are uh, FanDuel 
and DraftKings. Some of you maybe even have participated. These are sports betting sites, fantasy betting sites. You can go on every day and bet however much you want to do it. They'll even give you free money up front to do it. Um, what's interesting about fantasy sports is it used to be years ago if you had a favorite team or a favorite whatever, you'd watch maybe three hours on a Sunday. Now, if you've ever played fantasy sports, you know that I have guys playing in every game, so I have to pay attention to every game. And now you have entire days of the week or, or whole weeks where guys are glued, and women too, glued to their phones, glued to their computers, glued to the, and not so much time for family and not so much time for anything else and not so much time for God or, or whatever, because becoming a, being a spectator has become an all-immersive sort of experience. That was the design uh, of, of major sports. Sports can be all-consuming in our culture in recreation. Now, somebody again might say here, well, Pastor, isn't recreation good for us in some way, shape, or form? Isn't it good to have hobbies and distractions like that? And I would say, yes. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, when I've done counseling with people before, in addition to saying, yep, we're going to ramp up our prayer lives and ramp up our devotional lives, oftentimes I've prescribed for certain individuals a hobby. Say, you need to one afternoon a week or one day a week, you need to do this or this or this to get out of working too much or whatever else. However, being involved in recreation can be totally immersive as well. It's always a sacrifice. How much sacrifice is too much sacrifice? How much should I be sacrificing in time in order to maintain my golf game? How much should I be sacrificing in order to scratch that itch of hunting that I have? How far is too far? And you notice the issue of idolatry is always an issue of proportion. It's always an issue of degree. How far is too far? Where's that line in my heart? Finally, sports can become all-consuming uh, youth sports. Now, again, I'm going to say this as somebody who for the first 18 years of my life, I played sports nonstop, year-round, all the time. And I believe that there are certain things and benefits that you can get from being in youth sports that almost, blessings that almost can't be replicated elsewhere, perhaps. That said, everyone is noticing how out of control youth sports has gotten. And when I say everyone, I mean psychologists, doctors, moms, etc. There's been a wave of articles in recent years talking about um, how this has grown out of control uh, and become this all-consuming, con all-encompassing thing. Uh, one I read not that long ago in The Atlantic uh, was, uh, it, the title of the article was, When Did Competitive Sports Take Over American Childhood? You notice the question is not, has Amer uh, sports taken over childhood? It's, when did it? If you're asking, has youth sports gone too far, you're 10 to 20 years behind the American debate. Even the secular experts are saying, whoa, how far have we gone in this thing? Um, in the article, the, 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 the author cites things like, where did this come from? Maybe it was the, the, the self-esteem movement of the 60s. Maybe it was um, competitive uh, college entrance stuff. It, all sorts of reasons. But the point is, it has gotten that far. Uh, there's another article written, an interview in the New York Times this past year by a guy named Bob Bigelow. He wrote a book called Just Let the Kids Play, and he, um, he actually was a former NBA first-round draft pick. And in the article, he's quoted as saying, the biggest challenge of youth sports in this country is so many of the adults who propagate the culture and have no background in child development or physical education. Their background is that they played high school sports somewhere and they watch ESPN. Those are two of the worst qualifications ever. Now again, somebody will argue, but isn't youth sports, doesn't it, doesn't it help teach teamwork? 
doesn't it help teach uh, winning and losing in a safe place? Winning and losing graciously. Uh, doesn't it teach you know, hand-eye coordination? Doesn't it, uh, there's even research that says it improves academic performance. And I'm not disagreeing with any of that. All I'm saying is, how far is too far? What if mom or dad puts so much pressure on their child because, let's be honest, maybe they're kind of vicariously trying to live through that kid. What if quality family time for a family looks like parents sitting in the stands and kids out on the court or out on the field? What if the most important conversations parents ever had with kids was correcting their form? And you know I'm going to ask about this one. What if time spent in God's word with God's people worshiping God gets sacrificed for sports in some way, shape, or form because it's such a slave-driving schedule? It's no secret that a lot of youth sports demand that you travel around the state or around the city and squeeze in three games by noon on Sundays. The question is, how far is too far? Make no mistake, that very easily can become worship. Let's just call it what it is. So, how do we get out of that? How do we not fall victim to the world's thought? How do we, now again, I mean, why do we do this? Part of it's escapism. And the solution, the secret to address these kinds of escapism in your life is recognizing that a life in Christ based on the gospel promises of Christ is a life that doesn't actually need escaping. In other words, if you really believe the promises of Jesus, if I really believe the promises of Jesus, I would never look to alternate routes to try to escape from my life because I know how confident I'd be that my life would work out as it's supposed to. So how do we do this? Let me phrase the last point this way. We'll put it in sports terms. Aaron Rodgers has tremendous pocket presence. He doesn't have omnipresence. Where I came from um, in Minnesota, Adrian Peterson was a god. You know, half the kids at my school where I came from had Adrian Peterson jerseys, for sure. Um, Adrian Peterson is a once-in-a-generation physical specimen. But you know what he can't do? He can't ever get that body to eventually rise up out of its inevitable grave. Giannis, I love Giannis, the Greek freak. He can seemingly touch the skies, but by himself he cannot touch the throne of God because he's not God and therefore shouldn't be treated like a god. See, idolatry is an issue of proportion and degree. These players are good, but they're not God. Sports, recreation, other forms of escapism like that, they're exciting in many ways, but they do not begin to compare with how exciting, how exhilarating, how enjoyable, how glorious worship in heaven will be. The best cases of them, the best Super Bowl is only pointing to the excitement that we will one day experience in the worship of heaven. In our text today, we find a wounded warrior who through blood, sweat, and tears, he leaves it all out on the field. He conquered as enemy, his enemies as though he was the most ferocious of lions and yet he voluntarily allows himself to be treated like a little helpless lamb. Slaughtered 
to take away the sins of our idolatry. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the inherently ferocious lion who voluntarily gets treated like a helpless little lamb so that we, the naturally helpless little lambs who deserve to die and be slaughtered for our sins, would one day reign as kings and queens victorious in the jungle. Jesus alone is deserving of our praise. Now ask yourself, What motivates him? What would possibly motivate a lion like that to roll over and be abused the way he was? By the way, yes, there is a Detroit Lions joke in here somewhere, but I'm taking the high road. I came from Michigan. I've heard all the Detroit Lions jokes before. I'm not going to go there. But if Jesus is the ultimate lion, what would motivate him to be treated and abused like this? Lions don't do that. You know, about a decade ago, uh, Siegfried and Roy on their big tiger show, they, these were guys that actually they lived with the tigers. They just roamed around through their houses. and It's just insane. And one of, the lion, one of the tigers turned on them. They apparently had this great relationship. You know why he did that? Because tigers don't take orders very well. That's not the nature of a tiger because a tiger doesn't have to take orders. Even more so a lion. So what on earth motivates a lion to get abused like that? What was the trophy that he would eventually get out of it? It's you. Jesus would suffer it all for you because he so loved you. The infinite roar of the most ferocious of lions, the creator of the cosmos, became the infinite quiet of a little lamb because he loved you. Now I promise you, no athlete, no sport, no recreation is ever going to love you like that. And no other form of escapism is ever going to give you relief like the knowledge of Christ's love like that. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hobbies you give us, the recreation you've offered in our lives. Our culture is more blessed with this than seemingly any other culture in world history. Uh, It is a tremendous blessing and we thank you for it. But we'd ask you to forgive us for overvaluing these things. Sometimes it becomes too much. Sometimes it hurts our relationships with others. Sometimes we neglect those relationships. Sometimes we neglect our relationship with you. Help us not to medicate like that. Help us to have a healthy relationship with recreation. Help us to know that if we trust your gospel promises, our lives don't need escaping at all. Rather, they are joy-filled lives looking toward the greatest life and the greatest exhilaration possible, worshiping you in heaven. Let us live out of the joy of that truth. We pray this in our risen Savior's name. Amen.